Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes. And I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. This is the Engaging Missions Show, episode 255. This week, we're talking with Gregory about the importance of discipleship and what God is doing in Cyprus. I think we need to be able to see deeply the needs of this place if we're going to be able to, to meet them. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for stopping by and welcome to the show. We want to provide a way for thousands of people to hear a message, make connections, and take action. I would like to say before we get started, a quick welcome to Linda, David, Leanne, Ed, and Jack, who all recently connected on Facebook. If you haven't done that already, you can do that by going to facebook.com slash engaging missions. And to Linda, David, Leanne, Ed, and Jack, welcome. It's really great to have you. This week, we're going to be talking about what God's doing in Cyprus, as well as the importance of community and discipleship. Before we do that, though, I do want to just kind of do a quick personal update. Uh, As I'm recording this last week, I had a, a nice family vacation. We were able to take some time and make some memories. I also got some rest, and we were able to do some things around the house. That was really nice, and I just kind of like to let you guys know what's going on with that. I also have had somebody recently contact me about potentially being a sponsor for the show, but we we haven't exactly worked out what that would mean. And in fact, it might not actually mean anything, but I do want to make sure that I keep you in the loop. If you ever have any questions or comments about the show or about what's going on, please feel free to send those to me. You can email those to feedback at engagingmissions.com or feel free to hit me up on social media. This week's guest is Gregory, and I do want to mention that for security reasons, we're using a pen name. We have him here with us, and he co-leads a church in Cyprus and also directs a ministry training program that's focused on equipping believers for ministry in the Muslim world. This was a great conversation. It's loaded with great information. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Have you always been interested in ministry and discipleship? Always is a is a long time, but I at least since I was well, I was fourteen years old when I made a decision to be in full time ministry, and then I was sixteen years old when I made a commitment to this part of the world. Wow! And and why Cyprus? Well, there are several answers to that question, but initially. In, in 1993, when I was 16, I went to Turkey to be an exchange student, hmm. and that started a journey of ministry in Turkey and in Central Asia, where I lived with my family for 10 years. And then in 2016, I was deported from Turkey because of the work that we were doing there. And when we were forced to leave Turkey, we had to make some decisions about what we would do next. We wanted to stay in the region and we wanted to stay connected to the kinds of ministries that we were doing. And the place where we are in on the island of Cyprus 
was a natural fit for us because of the connection to culture, that it's geographically in the right location, and it's the same language. They speak Turkish in North Cyprus, where we are. Interesting. And as I think about that experience, when you took your family to, or you went with your family to Turkey, was that your nuclear family? Were you going with parents? What did that family look like? Well, when I was 16, I was just an exchange student. Okay, yeah. And so I, I just lived with a, a Turkish family as a as an exchange student, as a guest in their house. And that's when I started to learn Turkish. And it was during that year in 93, 94, that I fell in love with Turkey and began to learn Turkish and get to know the culture and felt quite at home there. And that was part of my experience of sensing a calling from God to come back to this part of the world. And uh, it was especially through an experience of having, well, going through a season of doubt, which I think was a natural part of being a 16 and 17-year-old, hmm. now surrounded by people who were not not from the same faith background that I was, who but yet who were as passionate about their beliefs as I was about mine. And, and that experience was, was in some ways an intense season of doubt about whether God was real at all and about whether the gospel was true. And there was a quite a, a miraculous story that led to my sensing a calling from God related to that season. One one night I was praying for God to reveal himself in a miraculous way and to send believers. And in the morning, there was a ship. The ship is called the Dulos, hmm. which was a ship of Christian ministers who had come to Turkey to share the gospel. And, and it was it was in the middle of the night while I was praying that that ship was docking in the harbor and there it was in the morning and in fact the ship had never intended to to come to to Mersin to my town where I was living it was on its way to Cyprus actually and instead it it Cyprus canceled its plans to have that ship arrive for whatever reason in the morning it was there and I was asked in the next uh, the next school day to help translate for a group of students who wanted to take a tour of that ship so got on the school buses and took the, the kids onto the onto the, the ship and had an experience of getting to know the crew and seeing a slideshow of all the places the ship had been. And I, and I saw a guy walk by with a Bible. Mm. I intercepted him in the hallway and asked him if he was a Christian. And this was a Friday afternoon. And when he said that he was a Christian, I asked if there was a worship service on, on Sunday in the, in, on the ship. And he got permission for me to attend the worship service. And even up to then, I still didn't realize that that the entire ship was was full of Christians. I thought that I had found a Christian mm. on a ship of 300 people from 30 countries. It wasn't until later that I discovered that the, the entire ship was full of Christians. So while I had been praying, God, knock me off my feet for a miraculous intervention on God's part to, to relieve me of my doubts, which is a faithless kind of prayer, but yeah. God honored it and sent Christians. And in this miraculous experience, I, I not only took that as an answer to faithless prayer to relieve my doubts, but also as as a confirmation of, of, of God's calling to come back to this part of the world. Wow. So it was, it was in that time that I made a commitment to come back here. Yeah, that must have been really encouraging to, to see God do that for you. I, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with, with how to go forward from that, because that's, that's a really powerful story. And I, I guess I'm kind yeah. of wondering, did, did that experience shape how you interact with other people now? Yeah, it certainly did. You know, when it, when... At the time, when I was 16, it felt like such a shameful thing to wrestle with doubts, to wonder whether God is real. You know, I'd grown up in, in the church, and although it would never be preached that way, you can sometimes absorb an expectation that 
you're supposed to be very confident and you're supposed mm. to be very sure. And so doubts are, are, are a form of weakness. And, you know, and since that experience, I've come to realize that everyone experiences doubts. You know, some people lie about them, but everybody experiences doubt. Yeah, that, that's good. And oh, keep, please keep going. Yeah, so in that way, I think it has given me a a gracious perspective with regard to other people's doubts that that I can understand people's struggling with faith in a way that that maybe I wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't had my own experience of wrestling with these doubts. Yeah, you co-lead a church, you direct a ministry training program, and then you also have a small but growing business. How did all of this get started? Well, when we first moved to Turkey, we moved first to a city in eastern Turkey called Malatya. It was in that city where in 2007, a few months after we arrived, three of our colleagues were brutally murdered. They were tied to their desk chairs, their throats were slit in the office of a Christian publishing company where they were working. It was a high-profile situation, and it was unfortunately, it meant that me and several of my coworkers had to leave the city where we were where we were working and when that happened we spent about a month on the road praying and considering where we would go we knew that we were going to stay in the country and we took an opportunity to come to Ankara to the capital of Turkey to help serve at a, a ministry training program that had recently begun it had been running for just a couple of years and hadn't yet come to the place where they wanted it to in terms of effectiveness and structure and organization. And so they were looking for some help serving in that training program. And we took them up on that offer. We were looking for a new ministry home in Turkey. We moved to Ankara and started serving in in the capital there, started serving as the leaders of this ministry training program after a few months. And During our first couple of years running a a training program, we recognized that if you're going to effectively equip believers for ministry, especially in this part of the world, that that really has to also include equipping people to live in a way that is sustainable. Mm. You have to equip people to be a blessing in their communities, to make meaningful contributions to the places where they're living, and to sustain themselves in ministry. So that meant, in effect, for, for us, giving people business training and experience as part of their ministry training program. And so we started a relationship with a coffee company, which we eventually bought mm. and developed. And so all of the students in our program started learning the coffee industry. And we were encouraged by the results of that in the lives of our students and in the impact that it had in the community around us. So eventually, when I moved to Cyprus just a couple of years ago, we had already had that in our blood. And so we started right away on developing a new company here in Cyprus where we make wine, and and also roast coffee. Hmm. You, you mentioned that you were encouraged by the results that you saw in the community as well as the, the people, the, the students. Can you say more about that? Yeah. There's sometimes a mentality in the church, even if it's not explicit, that the church kind of huddles around each other, just hanging on until eventually when Jesus comes and he'll, 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 he'll rescue us and take us all away. Mm. And that kind of, that kind of defensive huddling up mentality, just hang on until the end kind of mentality can 
sometimes prevent us from being salt and light in our world. And so I think a reasonable question for any church to ask is, is my neighborhood better because the church is in it? If the neighborhood, if the community around, even just the street around us isn't better because the church is there, then I think it's the church is doing something wrong. Church is missing something really important. Mm. So finding ways to engage, to interact with neighbors, with society, to be involved in the regular daily life of work and selling things and buying things, to be in financial relationships and business relationships with neighbors and with friends, with other companies, to be interwoven into the regular fabric of the everyday lives of Turkish people is a powerful way that the gospel and the the, the renewed, redeemed life of Jesus is able to demonstrate itself in avenues and outlets and spheres that otherwise the gospel would just be separated from. So we're able to demonstrate the way that Jesus lives by the way that we buy and sell coffee, by the way that we talk about our coffee, by the integrity with which we conduct the business, and hopefully also by the excellence that we're committed to in executing the business, and also gives us opportunities for things like generosity and to show what it means to be a good boss and a good co-worker. And of course, all of those things, you know, we don't do any of those things perfectly, but hopefully we aren't a- afraid to engage in those areas to to be able to be living out the new life of the gospel in those spheres. And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about when I say that we see the results of the company in the community around us. Wow. What's been the most challenging part of trying to to do that? Oh, there are lots of challenges. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the the biggest challenge is just the fact that business is hard. I'm not naturally a business person. You know, I, I, I'm a, a theologian, a philosopher by training, and I have gotten into business because I see its value in helping to make students and doing business is hard, you know, doing it in a way which is sustainable. And it takes hard work and focus and concentration and planning and often it takes more energy than I have to give to the business side of things because I'm committed to these other things, the ministry training in the church. So I think that the obstacles really are, biggest obstacles are not context specific. They aren't the kind of obstacles which are just related to the place I'm in. There are some of those kinds of obstacles. There's a lot of corruption in the in, in some of the fields where we're working in, and sometimes there's an unequal playing field because we're Christians, we're ethnic and religious minorities. But really, I think the biggest obstacles are just the regular hard work of doing business. Let's talk about your training program a little bit. You have the, the business, and I believe that's somehow intertwined with the training program, but can, we, can you just share with us what your training program is about? Yeah, the program we're now running here in Cyprus, which is called Exile, Exile Ministry Training, our focus is to equip men and women for ministry in the Muslim world. And we think about ministry training in three dimensions. It's equipping people in knowledge, experience, and character. It's not enough to give people a body of knowledge. Knowledge doesn't make a minister. Knowledge is important. You can't really serve fruitfully if you don't have a body of knowledge about the Bible and about the life of Jesus and about the way that the gospel should impact our lives. But if knowledge was enough, then we could just give prospective ministers a stack of books and call the job done. Mm. But it doesn't work that way. We also need to be giving students 
experiences of ministry. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and then he asks them, do you, do you see what I've done? And he asks them to do the same thing that he has done. If we want people to serve, you have to give them experiences of serving. If you want people learning, if you want people to learn how to serve well, you've got to have them serving as part of their training. That experience, I think, is an essential part of ministry training. One of the first things we say to our students on, on day one of the program is that somebody who is not willing to scrub toilets shouldn't be preaching. Mm. And I, I wanna I wanna train people who are qualified preachers, which means I'm going to give you plenty of opportunities to scrub toilets. <laughs> So, you know, knowledge, experience, but you can also have plenty of knowledge and plenty of experience. You can have a well-rounded CV with all of the right training and all of the right job experience. But but if you don't have that third piece, character, you are, aren't still a qualified minister. And, you know, somebody said that character is like the cup that knowledge and experience go into. If the cup has holes, it doesn't matter how much knowledge and experience you put into the cup. And I think character is essentially shaped in the context of community, not in the classroom. So you can give a lesson about forgiveness, but somebody in that classroom isn't learning to forgive because they have heard your lesson. It's in the experience of living together. It's in being in a situation where I have to forgive because I have been offended. That's where a person learns to forgive. Similarly with generosity and sacrifice, with humility and encouragement. These are important, essential disciplines for Christian ministry, and they're not the kind of thing that you can learn in the classroom. They're the, the kinds of disciplines that you learn in community. So we invite our students to come and live together. It's an intense experience of community. We, we take inspiration from the model of the, of the Desert Fathers, who carved out an example of communal monasticism, men and women coming to live together, committing to God and to one another to impact the world around them, usually around a, a series of vows or a rule. And that's the, the model for the program that we have. And since our goal is to equip men and women to impact the world around them, that also includes business training. So we started that, that coffee company. We did that in Turkey, and we've reproduced that model here in mm. Cyprus now so that all the students in our training program are learning not just how to interpret the Bible and how to lead a Bible study and how to share the gospel, which are also things that we're wanting to teach, mm -hmm. but they're also learning how to roast coffee and evaluate coffee and how to make a great espresso and a, a great cappuccino. Because we think that, that that also will be a valuable skill for them, even if they don't get a job sometime in coffee, although many of our graduates do go on to become baristas or working somewhere in the coffee industry. But even if they don't, the discipline of learning how to work and the value of work is an important part of our formation toward Christlikeness. So we use the company as primarily as a training vessel for students to learn those disciplines. One of the things that stood out to me is the idea of forming this after a monastic tradition. And I think for some people listening, this might be a, a bit of a red flag. They might have something that they've read or something that they've experienced where they feel like people are being called out rather than being called into or that maybe there's some kind of mysticism tied to that. What what would you share with somebody if you sat down with them and they had some some baggage related to monasticism? Sure. I think just getting a a picture of the context for how it developed helps to understand its value today. You know, in the first century, when the gospel was spreading in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, 
it was under the control of the Roman Empire, and Christianity was an oppressed minority. The Roman Empire was trying to stamp out this growing religious movement, which they thought they thought, saw as a as a political threat and a threat to the religion of the empire. So they're killing Christians, and in in that kind of era, what it means to take up your cross, what it means to identify with Christ, is really clear. You might die in the same way that he did. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that people understood their discipleship and potentially the cost of their allegiance to Christ is they might die in the way that Jesus did. And that was an essential part. It was really an important part of the spirituality of that first generation of the church. But by the middle of the fourth century, Christianity is no longer an oppressed minority. Christianity is now the means to power. The empire has adopted Christianity as something like an an official religion by the middle of the 300s. So if you want to get a government job, you have to be a Christian. You want to marry the right person or have the right kind of social influence. If you want the neighbors to like you, you you need to be a Christian. And that was a very different kind of cultural atmosphere for the gospel. And it was one which made it harder to understand what is the cost of following Jesus if following Jesus is the means to money and fame and power. And it was out of that context that the Desert Fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, they carved out literally out of the rock of Cappadocia in central Turkey a new way of living, inviting communities to come and live together to commit to God and to one another to impact the world around them. Their goal was not to escape from society or to be isolated, but to model a kind of exit from mainstream culture in order to embody the radical values of the gospel as men and women living together. And it's out of these communities that hospitals and hostels and schools and community centers emerged. And it was out of this monastic movement that the missions movement was born. And we have a missions movement as a direct descendant of the monastic movement. So it was that model of, of coming together around a commitment to God and to one another. And this is what makes it's what makes our, our program different from a school. You know, we don't we don't describe exile as a school. And the difference between a school and a a brotherhood, which is what we prefer to describe our training program as, the difference is, is, I think, quite clear. In a school, the goal of the school is to acquire a body of knowledge. And as I said, I think that's important, that's valuable. But if the goal of a school is to acquire a body of knowledge, my relationships with the students around me, while they might be valuable, while they might contribute to the experience, they're only going to be secondarily important. They aren't going to be an essential part of the curriculum. Hmm. I'm, I'm there. I can, if I want to, I can just sit in the classroom, keep my head down, get the assignments done, and get my diploma and get out. But in a brotherhood, it's the commitment to one another, which is the context for whatever kind of development will happen, including acquiring knowledge. So the relationships that I have with the people around me are an essential part of the formation that's happening in a brotherhood. And that's, I think, a better model for ministry training than a school is, because it just gives you an opportunity to embody those other values which are so essential to formation of Christian ministers like character and experience. So that's what we mean by monasticism. And there are a lot of ways in our program that we try to embody that, taking inspiration from 
the Desert Fathers, from the, the movement of communal monasticism as we've seen it over the centuries. We're Protestants. I mean, I'm not, not ashamed to be a Protestant and an evangelical, but there's so much that we can learn and draw from the historical monastic movements that have thrived right in the, in the area where we're living, right from the middle of the 4th century straight up until the 21st century. They're, they were the primary source of vitality. Mm. So at the center of our program is a five-fold vow. We ask our students to make a, a commitment. We do it in a couple of stages, but our students make a, a commitment to a way of living, which is around five values of prayer, ministry, study, community, and faithfulness. We frame them in terms of five detailed questions that we ask at a couple of different stages and asking our students to make those commitments, saying yes to those five things, to a life which is going to be focused, dedicated to prayer, ministry, study, community, and faithfulness. And at the end of the program, our graduation is a restatement of those vows as a lifetime commitment, a lifetime commitment to live according to prayer, ministry, study, community, and faithfulness. So at the end of the uh, program, we don't give our students a diploma. I don't give certificates. I don't give diploma because a diploma is a symbol of accomplishment. Somebody graduates from a university when I graduated from seminary, big ceremony around which I was given a diploma. Mm. And a diploma is something you, you hang on the wall and it's a sign of accomplishment. Look what I did. But I didn't get a diploma when I got married. Hmm. When I got married, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a symbol of accomplishment, which was at the center of that ceremony. Rather, it was a ring. And I put the ring on not as a symbol of accomplishment, look what I did. I put the ring on as a symbol of commitment. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder and a symbol of the commitment that I've made, a promise that I've made to another person. I've made that promise with her, and together we've made a promise to God. And that ring is its not magic, it's just a ring, but it's a symbol of a commitment, a promise that I've made. And so, similarly, at the end of the exile training, we give our students a ring as a symbol of the commitment they've made to this way of living. I, I really like that. I'm wondering, wh what do you like most about being involved in what God's doing in exile? I, you know, I think it's a difficult question to answer because <laughs> I think in general, <laughs> you know, I, there's a lot, you know, I, I love everything that we do. I, you know, I love that we make coffee. I love that we make wine and I've come to appreciate deeply the goodness of those things. And I think part of the Christian life is learning to appreciate the deep goodness of Jesus's way of living and all of the good things that Jesus has given. But then in general, in a more overarching sort of sense, ministry is a privilege and anything that we can do, which is participating in God's plan in the nations is not something that we've deserved or earned. It's something that's beyond us. It's something that we don't deserve. It's and in honor that that we don't deserve, Paul says in Second Corinthians four, the first verse, he says, "Since it is by God's mercy that we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. It's by God's mercy that we have the privilege to serve." And sometimes, in the context around us as ministers, can tempt us to think that the people should be astonished that I bothered hmm. to give up so much to come and tell them about God. Look what I've done. But in, in reality, it's more like God looking down on me saying, I think I'll let you talk about me in the nations. And the more I can deeply internalize that truth, the more I can genuinely be in awe of the privilege of serving in the place where I'm serving now. So 
that's something I also want to convey and impart to our, our students. And the, the more you can internalize that truth, then the more joy you can derive from every day getting up and going through all of the difficulties even that are involved with serving. Because, you know, not, you know it's, not a, it's not an act of self-deception, but it's a genuine conviction that all of this is a privilege. Wow. I, I, that's kind of a, a drop the mic moment, if you will. I'm, I'm struggling a little <laughs> bit to, to, to kind of process that because that's, that's some deep stuff. And, and I appreciate that you're drawing from a deep well, a deep well of intimacy with God, some deep knowledge in the word, but also deep practical experience in doing what you're doing. I, I very much, I very much appreciate that. I would like to to make sure that we talk a little bit more about the school because I know that as we're recording this, you have some additional sessions coming up. And I, I'm wondering, would you take a minute to share with us how the school is structured in terms of uh, classes and people and timing, how long it takes, all of the mechanics of the school in case there's somebody listening that thinks, hey, this might be something that's good for me or somebody that I know. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Exile is a, a ministry training program that lasts three months. We do the training over a three-month period, and we're right now doing it three months a year in English and three months a year in Turkish. So we graduated our English class this spring, and we had nine students and a couple from Tajikistan, from Kyrgyzstan, from India, from the U.S., and from Nigeria and South Africa. So it's quite a diverse crowd, and that's what we are, are aiming for. And in the Turkish program, we're having a, a new round of the training, which will be conducted in Turkish, and that's just going to start at the end of this next month. So we're right now in the process of drawing students, taking applications, and selecting an in, incoming class. We don't take more than eight students a year. And uh, so in English, that usually means that, that we'll be able to sort of pick and choose who is the best fit for the incoming class. But in Turkish, it's a, it's a much more limited pool that we're drawing from. So in Turkish, it's more like getting the word out and convincing churches that they should send candidates to for this kind of training because it's going to be a good investment in their church and in the lives of their people. Mm. And the program is an intense experience. We, we think of the classes is divided into five curriculum areas. So it's Bible, theology, spiritual formation, discipleship, history and religions, and then what we call practical ministry topics, where we're focusing on things like evangelism, preaching, worship, leading children's ministries. The students all read the entire Bible during the three-month program, and they also read the entire Quran. And we want to focus in this program on equipping ministers for the Muslim world. We think that if we're going to love our neighbors well, it's important that we understand what they believe. So we read the Quran in addition to the Bible. and. During that three months, the uh, students are learning a method for teaching the Bible. So from first hour from 8.30 in the morning until 9.30 is student-led worship where we're teaching a method for leading a Bible study. And then we spend some time evaluating as each of the students in turn take a passage and share from it. And then we have classes from 9.30 in the morning until 12.30 uh, in those five areas. And take a lunch break. And then after lunch, from two to five every day is organized ministry opportunities. So a couple of days a week, that's helping out at the place where our training is hosted. We where we do the training at, uh, at a hotel. It's an ecotourism hotel in a rural part of North Cyprus. The hotel is owned by a friend and colleague of ours, a Turkish guy. And 
he has a passion for teaching and preserving Cyprus cultures. So he's honored to receive our students and help them understand the culture and the history of Cyprus. And our students work in the organic garden and the vineyard. And he uses what's called a permaculture farming techniques, gardening techniques. So they're learning a bit about that and helping to maintain the, the place. And then three days a week, they're me learning coffee and wine, depending on the class. So that's where they're getting the experience of learning to roast and appreciate coffee and make a good espresso and a cappuccino and those business skills. And and then they all the students also participate in our church here in Cyprus. So we, our church is, is in two congregations. We have an English-speaking congregation and a Turkish-speaking congregation just because of the diversity of Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the student and their capabilities, they are involved in one or both of those congregations during the week as well. Wow. It's quite an intense experience. And yeah, we're right now we're, we're, we're taking applications for that Turkish program. And then the English, the next round of the English program will happen in September. And if there are interested people, they can take a look at exilecypress.com and get in touch with us through there. Excellent. So f- for those of you that are listening, we will make sure that that's linked up in the show notes so that you have access to that. If, if you or somebody you know might be interested in this, I would encourage you to take a minute to share this with them. Gregory, we're just about to draw this to a close. And I'm wondering, before we hop off the line, is there anything in particular that we can pray for you about? Well, we've got a lot of new things happening here. You know, we're in Cyprus. We've only been here for two years, so I, I am still very much a student of Cyprus and a student of, of the culture, the, the the place, the history, and getting a sense for how we can best meet the needs of the place here. So in these first couple of years, we've adapted and reproduced the things we've been doing in other regions, but I think there's more for us. I think we need to be able to see deeply the needs of this place if we're going to be able to to meet them. And I think that's that's what I would want to be asking people to pray for. I think a, a basic discipline of, of ministry, maybe the basic discipline of ministry, is to to find a need and meet it. That's different from finding a position and filling it, but to find a need and meet it. And and the more we can see deeply the needs around us, the more able we are to meet them. So I, I think that I'm still growing in my capacity to see the needs of the place where I'm in. And so that's something I could use prayer for. And and practically, we've just opened up a new cafe downtown, which our church is also using as its meeting place. So we would definitely appreciate prayer for that, for that business part of it, the cafe, to be successful and for it to be fruitful to have a new meeting place, which is going to be much more public than our church has met up to now. Hmm. For those of you listening, I would encourage you to take a minute, pause the recording, and pray right now. I know, at least for me, it's really easy to forget if I think I'll do it later, so I would encourage you to do that. As I mentioned, links for things will be in the show notes. You can find those at engagingmissions.com slash Gregory, or just tap through in your favorite podcast app, and we'll have those up there for you right there. Gregory, I do want to say one more time, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a privilege. I really enjoyed talking to you and and, uh, hopefully we'll uh, get a chance to connect again. Yeah. Well, thank I'd like to say one more huge thank you to Gregory for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate him opening up and sharing his story and also what's going on with the training and what they're doing in Cyprus. Really, really good stuff. 
Also, a huge shout out to Jeff and Gabby for their ongoing work in helping make this show possible. And for those of you who are helping support the show financially or in prayer or by getting the word out, I very much appreciate that. Show notes are available at engagingmissions.com slash Gregory. That's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y, engagingmissions.com slash Gregory. If you're looking for the resources that we talked about or a link to the website, you'll find those all right there. Or if you're already subscribed in your favorite podcast app and you can just tap the link right there or swipe or however you get there, you may be able to click through right there, engagingmissions.com slash Gregory. Make sure that you come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about leadership development and how important it is for each of us to know and then fill our roles for God's glory. And we're going to we're going to be addressing some of the tough questions. I think this is going to be really good. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe to the show by visiting engagingmissions.com slash subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you know somebody who you think might benefit from either what we talked about today or what we're talking about in a couple of weeks, make sure that you let them know about that show. Engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. As always, if you have any feedback or suggestions, email me, feedback at engagingmissions.com. I would love to hear from you, and I really look forward to getting out the next episode in a couple of weeks.